Want to help your teachers save over 10 hours per week? Introduce them to School AI. It's not just a tool, it's a partner in the classroom. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time learning data, and provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Plus, it's free for teachers. Visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. That's schoolai.com. Focal Point K-12 is an innovative tool that helps teachers and students manage student portfolios. It provides a digital portfolio for students to store their work, set and track their own learning goals, and earn credentials and industry certifications. The platform also uses blockchain technology to ensure the security and safety of student data. Teachers can use Focal Point K-12's real-time dashboards to track student progress and save time with AI-assisted scoring. To learn more, visit focalpoint.education. Principles. Research shouldn't be a maze for students. Scribble offers a unified platform streaming the research and writing process. It integrates with major educational tools, ensures authentic student work, and provides educators with real-time insights. Elevate your school's academic rigor. Learn more at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. Okay, welcome to Transformative Principle. I am so excited to have Thomas Thompson on the program today. He is the founder and CEO of EduAid.ai, which boasts over 100,000 users. EduAid is an AI tool to help eliminate teacher burnout and make high-quality teaching resources universally accessible. Thomas has a master's in educational technology from John Hopkins School of Education and is still a teacher in the Maryland area. So running a business and uh, being a teacher still uh, definitely gives him insight. Thomas, welcome to Transformative Principal. Appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to sit down and talk. Uh, this is going to be a time is a precious commodity. As a principal, you know this all too well. Between lesson planning, grading, and providing personalized feedback, the hours in a day can quickly disappear. What if you could help your teachers get some of that time back? Introducing School AI. School AI is not just a tool, it's your teacher's partner in the classroom. Help your teachers save over 10 hours a week on busy work, allowing them to focus on what they do best, teaching. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time data on learning, and even provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring for every student. School AI also provides a FERPA-compliant chat GPT experience. But that's not all. School AI's co-teacher feature is like a personal assistant, adapting daily lessons to student interests, checking for understanding, and even automating parent communication. And the best part, it's free for teachers. So if you're ready to reclaim your time and transform your school with the power of AI, visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. Visit them at schoolai.com. A, a great conversation, but why don't we start by you telling us about how and why you started EduAid? Because you have an interesting career path and you've done some interesting things. And I think that this uh, would be an interesting insight to get started with. So I'm calling you right now from Maryland, but I'm not originally from Maryland. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh. My co-founder, Thomas Hummel, is as well, but he and I never knew each other, even though we grew up about 15 minutes away. We met each other in Maryland when we were both teaching middle school right across the hall from one another. And he and I shared many, many conversations, very similar to probably the one we're going to have today, just about 
you know, the institution that we work in, the just the nature of education being this this public good and foundational human right, and a number of the concerns that get in the way of it being done well, and just a lot of just maybe just banging our head against the chalkboard kind of conversations. And out of those came a few ideas, but nothing really came of fruition. Uh, he moved to another school. I moved to another school closer to home, saved myself an hour commutes, undertook my graduate work. And then we reconnected about in March of this year with the idea that perhaps large language models can offer an opportunity to solve some of the problems that he and I discussed. Not all. We don't think the technology is a panacea. It's not going to solve all of our educational challenges. However, we, we saw it as a way to solve a few key challenges pretty well. And really, we started working on that from that, from that realization on. Yeah. So what are some of the problems that, that you're setting out to solve? The first one, of course, is teacher attrition. I don't know how you build an institution that values excellence if you cannot retain talent long-term. The percentage of teachers that turn over within the first three years is uh, unconscionable, and we could do better than we do. So why do we think large language models can help solve that? Well, we view large language models as a way to increase efficiency in the teachers during their planning time, right? Uh, let's say I have an eight-hour workday. Six and a half of those hours are purely instructional on average. Um, that means I'm in front of the classroom. I don't really have time for anything else. So I'm interfacing with my students. The other two hours of my day are tied up for everything else, right? IEP meetings, parent meetings, faculty meetings, staff meetings, team meetings, department meetings, so on and so forth. Planning. Lunch. Lunch, fielding emails. I have a terrible addiction to coffees, you know, getting a cup of coffee during that planning as well. And consequently going to the bathroom a yes, lot. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I was up twice using the restroom. Thank the Lord that I have a co-teacher that makes my life much easier instead of having to sneak it in between classes. But that amount of time is not enough to do effective deep work. Um, instructional planning isn't a rote task. You just come in and do the routine. It's a task that requires a level of creativity and a level of I mean, ongoing professional development while you're doing it. You might want to look into a technique or a method you want to try out and you want to do some exploration. Well, you end up taking a lot of that work home with you because you have to do also grading, feedback, fielding emails and the like. So now you have this issue around the work-life balance and what sacrifices are you making to do the work you enjoy to do? And many teachers feel as though that isn't that's not a great state of affairs, having to take a majority of the work home because you don't have a time during the day. And that leads to burnout, that leads to turnover, that leads to people moving on to different careers. And we said, okay, expanding the amount of time you have to plan, that's a, that's a big ask and a big pull. And it's going to involve contract negotiations and unions and just years and years and years of just being bogged down in the kind of process. So what if we can condense the amount of time a teacher would spend on any given task so that they can unlock some time for themselves to engage in these creative tasks and the exploration of lesson planning? And that's where we saw the, the power of large language models to increase teacher efficiency and effectiveness, and then hopefully in doing so, unlock time so that we can increase teacher excellence over time. Okay, so interesting that you're saying that teachers need time to do deep work to be successful with planning and and yet you're creating a tool that does the planning for them so talk about that aspect mm. because some people may hear that and say 
well, if it takes deep work, then how can a large language model just take care of all that for you? And tell us what you mean when you say condense some time so that they have time to spend in those other creative pursuits. Yeah. So we do not envision the AI doing everything. It's very, it's limited in what we actually want it to do and maybe more limited than we currently have it on our application. What we mean is, let's say you have to do a plan a lesson on British colonial policies in America. And all you really have is maybe that keyword to go on or some objectives from your, um, from your state framework. And you spend a lot of time searching for resources that you might want to use. And you're jumping between all of the different tabs, right? Your school bought a resource package. You have the textbook package. You're reading through all of these documents. You're pulling them together. And then you have maybe some students who are English language learners and some students with IEP. So you have to differentiate instruction. You have to translate instruction. Now you're jumping between your translate tab and your other app to scale the Lexile level. We said, okay, let's cut out the friction points. Let's bring all of these tools into one place, use the power of generative content to replace these very restrictive, static, copywritten resources that you might get from a textbook company. So by bringing these resources under one roof and making them all really small and modular, um, we're hoping that the AI doesn't do everything, but rather it does a few things the teacher would otherwise spend hours, say, searching for. And then that will give them the time to use a suite of personalization tools that we offer on the app to shape the instruction to be exactly what they need. I mean, on our landing page, we have a, a just a description of our workflow, which is three steps, uh, source it, shape it, share it, right? Source it being the only the first step. That's where you're actually generating the content. Shape it is where we hope the teachers will spend the most amount of time, where they're differentiating instruction, personalizing instruction, extracting keywords, making glossaries, looking at new methods and techniques to explore and conveying this content with their students. And only then is it ready to be shared. So we free up the, ta free up the time on the rote tasks, like finding the resources and um, perhaps maybe translating and things like that. And then open up the amount of time we have for personalization and differentiation where the teachers can do that creative thinking about the unique needs of the diverse learners in their room and then you know save that initial rote time they have the time to explore those opportunities this is something that i think a lot of people who are hearing about artificial intelligence and teachers using it aren't understanding about what it is that a lot of people like you like me are trying to 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 accomplish with these large language models, which is the goal is not to have it do all the work for you. Mm -hmm. The goal is, if I understand you correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, the goal is to make it so that the time and energy spent on things that don't need the personal touch of the teacher, mm -hmm. that don't need the human element of the teacher are created much faster, quicker, and easier for the teacher. A good example is for like assessment of questions, right? Mm -hmm. Creating assessment questions for me personally, as mm -hmm. a teacher has always been a terrible, awful, horrid thing that I just despise. And being able to ask a large language model to come up with questions, those at the very beginning are mm -hmm. going to be better than what I would come up with because that is just a difficult task for me to do especially if it needs to be multiple choice and coming up with wrong answers that show that the student really understands it. It's just, a, it's just a big ask 
for me. Yeah. Is that is that what you're talking about when you when you're talking about what the AI tools can do? That and also as a kind of a creative collaborator, it gives you a starting place, right? I might ask we offer on our website, it's our most used resource, a lesson seed, which is different than a lesson plan. It's not a prescriptive document as much as it is you could do this range of activities to meet this objective or you could do ask this range of formative assessment questions and then as a teacher your job is no longer pure creation as much as it is refinement you take what is there and hone it right we i kept coming back to this the sculptor metaphor when we were first starting eduade which was like we should look at generative content like a, like a sculptor might look like a block of marble or something right what exactly can you do to this to make it that work of art or that that thing worth some value it's the marble might be of fine quality but it's not the finished product until the artist puts their hand to it just like the generative content itself may be of quite fine quality or or not all the time i mean there are limitations with biases and hallucinations and the like but what can the teacher add to it that will create that that, that thing of value so let let's talk a little bit about the the decisions that go into it and mm -hmm. if if we're going back to those multiple choice questions like i i intentionally chose that because multiple choice questions are like the worst questions we can ask we only yeah. ask them because they are easy for us to grade and see a response to whereas students being able to express what they've learned in their own words is so much more valuable because you can really see what it is that they've learned, uh, but it's just really hard to grade. And so that's one of the things that AI can potentially help with as well, that it doesn't just need to create and an recreate another bad system. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be some change there. And with this approach, you have opportunities. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had Kaylin Sharp from schoolai.com mm -hmm. on, and he talked about how they're creating these spaces where kids can go in and have conversations with the AI and the teacher then can get a different perspective about what the kid understands or doesn't understand mm. that is more conversational and allows the AI to assess whether or not the student yeah. is getting what it is that the teacher is trying to teach them, but do it in a way that is not like answer A, B, C, or D. Mm. And so let's talk about some of the ways that we can change how we teach with the advent of these types of tools what are some of the things that you're seeing or that you're trying to as you design your tool mm -hmm. to kind of force some of these changes to happen well first what you just said was quite interesting right that is a best practice in education elaborative interrogation where you have a student explain and elaborate exactly what it is they mean by the statements that they make Using a chatbot to do that, to elicit those kind of elaborative explanations from students would definitely be a way that we could better align instruction with best practices in education as discerned and ascertained from, say, the cognitive science research base or learning sciences more broadly, which is where I would prefer to pull a lot of our methods from. I feel like we have in education kind of a, I don't want to say a habit, but maybe there is I notice maybe in more than other professions a habit to pull away from a research-based approach, even though we say we're data-driven, right? It ends up feeling like we collect a lot of data in education and there's not a lot of time to act on it. But to your question about what this technology could do, there's some interesting implications like maybe a teacher generates six essays from a language model 
tells the students these are D's, this is a C, this is a this is an F, this is an A. How could you make them better? Now you have students engaging not in essay writing, but the consideration of what is it that makes a quality essay, a quality argument, right? Now you have the student doing the work of the teacher in, in, in ways that are additive for the student. Or you could perhaps have an assignment where you say, prompt the AI to do X, Y, and Z or create an article about a certain topic or a certain theme. And then you have the student read the article and identify whether or not the artificial intelligence actually makes that claim or makes that argument or what flaws are in that argument. It takes the process out of the student having to go about and write, say, a full essay where we're now so worried they could use AI to cheat, but consider what it is that makes a good essay, what it is that makes a good argument by interfacing with the AI, looking at examples of what it generates and finding evidence inside the generations, doing a lot of more fact-checking kind of informational literacy that I don't think was before possible. Now, of course, there's the use cases that we're already seeing development for, which are artificially intelligent tutors, and there's a lot of great systems in the works that are coming out. Latest announcement from Khan Academy, their AI tutor. I mean, we're going to see AI, AI tutors out of, the, out of the wazoo. In fact, we were pitching around an idea. Um, Alexander the Great called Aristotle his pocket philosopher, and I always yeah. thought it, it would be great now if you like trained a language model on the complete corpus of work on Aristotle or some ancient Greek philosopher who we have a lot of the surviving work in the public domain. And then you have a pocket philosopher where you can say, select Marcus Aurelius and ask him all of your questions. That'd be quite fun. That'd be, that'd be an interesting application that I would certainly use. But the use of these intelligent tutors who are trained on the data of different individuals before we were talking about the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, it'd be interesting to train a model on him and have a conversation with AI Wittgenstein. And that already happens. I mean, great podcast conversation with conversations with Tyler, with Tyler Cowan. He interviewed a chat GPT plugin with Jonathan Swift that was quite interesting and, and a lot of fun. So those avenues for these intelligent tutor models are going to be interesting. And we've already seen applications of it. I mean, in chess, for example, a lot of people train against chess bots because that they're fantastic trainers that never get tired or exhausted and they'll always make the right move if you want them to. And that that's it's increased the play. I mean, more people play chess now than did uh, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. There's a, it gets me excited because these, these intelligent tutor type ideas are the ones that I think will bear out and have borne out a lot of, a lot of value in different fields, again, like so, chess. So in that specific example, it, the value becomes really powerful when you think about a specific skill set that you're trying to teach where they're like chess, for example, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of information about what makes a good or a great chess player and being able to scale that up or down yeah. in a way that is, uh, that's really powerful to help the person learn. So could you have a, uh, we'll stay away from math cause they're still so bad at math, but could you have a, a an English writer? as something that would help you? Could you have a scientist who could help you learn specific scientific principles that are, are that worthwhile? Could you have a coach for a sport like football, basketball, tennis, whatever it is to constantly give yeah. you feedback on every single play, every single thing that you do, those applications become really fascinating and very different from what hmm. we're currently doing and have the capacity to do right now. I mean, maybe the drawback that I pull from, from my own argument about the, the chess example 
is that chess is a closed system, 64 squares. There's only so many permutations and of, of chess. That said, it's, it's a huge number, right? Um, it expands rapidly uh, the deeper into the game you get. However, and then there's the question like, is, is language a closed system? I mean, ChatGP is dem ChatGPT is demonstrating that it certainly maybe feels like it is. And I'm curious what these models will look like in five years. But other things like different kinds of games, I, I feel like you probably you could see interesting AI tutors. But then there's a lot of the, the, the disembodied human movement type things, like how valuable could it be in telling you how to play basketball? Um, it's a language model. So there is this disconnect between our world as language and our world and in, in being as it, as it actually is for us physically. Yeah. And I, and I think there's also this different perspective as well that I'm, I've had this idea in my mind for a while and I haven't been able to articulate it well. So forgive me as I stumble through it, but there's this idea of proficiency that we strive so much for in education mm -hmm. where, you know, we pass off specific standards or, or achieve certain goals in what we're trying to learn. And while that is all fine and dandy, just because you know something doesn't mean that you can transfer to actually doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I can understand the mechanics of how to shoot a basketball yeah. and, and even be able to tell myself, apply a certain amount of force to this shot. And I know that I can make it that distance and angle it this specific way. And I know I can get it towards the basket, but does that mean that I can actually translate that into playing the game? And this extends to many other things as well. You know, I've, I've published two books and I'm writing my third book. I've already written another book that I haven't published yet. Mm -hmm. Because there is a mental block saying this is not done yet. I don't know what to do to finish it. And I'm, uh, and I'm afraid of taking the next step and diving back into it um, because I don't have time or whatever other excuses. Yeah. All these things come into play that I know how to technically write a book, mm -hmm. but writing a great book is different. And this yes. other book that I've already written is a fiction book and I haven't published a fiction book before. And so I'm a little bit nervous about mm -hmm. it and whether or not it's as good as I think it is, or if this story is good in my head, but it's not good on paper yet. Those are all these things that I'm trying to wrestle with. What's your thought on that? Well, I mean, for me as, as someone who is engaged in a little creative writing projects in the in the past, but nothing ever came of them. I always felt like it was very hard to get quality feedback. You were never sure if maybe it's just the person likes you and they're trying to still be your friend. And how do I get this this hard hitting feedback? Maybe I feel like I can't access it given my circumstances. I think AI would be great in that regard. Now, as we were getting at earlier, you put in an essay and the feedback was about as long as the essay was. And, That's right. <laughs> right. Kind of combing through that. But if the feedback is solid and you know it's pointing out maybe stylistic things, that's interesting. Maybe the more interesting thing is using the AI to not necessarily train you in what makes a great book or a great basketball player, but understands what are the, the parameters you must be in to have the highest likelihood of success given past examples. So maybe it's not that Generative AI will make a particularly good educational planner, but maybe it knows the parameters in which 
an education, a lesson plan is, is most likely to succeed. Like maybe there's a yeah. set of best practices that have that have a lot of promise given the many, many meta-analyses it could run with a large enough data set. That is that's what's interesting for us. And that's what we really try to do with with embedding best practices into our generative resources. Like what are the parameters that make, say, a good multiple choice question or what are the parameters that make a good team-based activity or a collaborative learning experience or or inquiry or any kind of learning method honestly for me it really seems to come down to assessing and student prior knowledge but that's a different kind of thing altogether picture this a student drowning in tabs tools and notes struggling to piece together a research project sounds familiar right now, imagine all of that streamlined under one roof. That's Scribble. Scribble is more than just a tool, it's a game changer. Students can curate, annotate, cite, and write all in one place. Collaborative annotations? Check. Automatic citations? Check. Real-time feedback for educators? You bet. And the best part is, it's not just about making tasks easier. It's about freeing up time for higher-level learning and critical thinking. Are you worried about AI plagiarism? With Scribble, students show their authentic work process, making it genuine and credible. And I mentioned it won the Soup's Choice Award for College and Career Readiness. So if you're ready to transform the way your school approaches research and writing, head over to scribble.com and see the magic for yourself. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. So let's talk a little bit deeper about that, because I think this is really interesting too, because when you when you're creating something, then you're defining how decisions are made, mm -hmm. right? And you're embedding best practices into the models and the things that you're doing. What does that actually look like? What does that look like on a real level? You gave a couple yeah. of brief examples, but let's go deeper into one of them, choose which one, mm -hmm. and and talk about what that looks like. So uh, cooperative learning, for example, we could we could go down there and say, what makes good cooperative learning? And yeah. one, how do you know? And then how do you influence the AI to come back with something that matches that rather than whatever it feels like it, it thinks should be good and they don't think, but you know what I mean? Well, this <laughs> it's at this point that I feel like we really come up on the, the limitations of the technology because depending on the training sets of the, of the large language model, biases do exist and do, and do permeate the responses and. There are I mean, plenty of instances of hallucinations where it'll generate wholly false material, but sometimes those hallucinations and biases are very subtle and maybe not something you would notice on, on the first go around. Uh, humans have a way of, of filling in the correct word when they misread or something like that. However, I think there are ways that you can better guarantee success more reliably, right? How could you guarantee success more reliably than, say, with a one-shot prompt? where you ask the AI to do something. So there's some prompt engineering things that you can do. For example, with EduAid, we look at a lot of in-context learning. How is it that we can lead the, the language model into being in those parameters of, of what makes something useful? That might be with examples or with defining what the parameters of a, say, multiple choice question or a cooperative learning activity are. I could take, um, because I was just working on this one last night, I could talk about unit plans a little bit, the, the broad, broad planning document, four to six weeks of instructional planning. There are some arbitrary things like the four to six weeks of instructional planning. That's based on averages, right? Maybe a unit's longer for some people, maybe it's shorter for others. 
but it's kind of splitting the difference as best as we can. So you have a decent chunk of time. That's another scary thing, setting the time, right? How long is a lesson plan? For some teachers, it's a block schedule, which is 80 minutes. For some teachers, it's a shortened class, 42. For me, at least, it's 52 minutes. Um, you'll notice that Eduate AI offers a 52-minute lesson plan. I, I made the thing, all right? It's 52 minutes because I teach 52 minutes. Now, does that also feel like I'm splitting the difference between the two? Yes. Maybe there'd be a better way. And We'll investigate if there's a better way of calculating that time, maybe with the exact averages. But for a unit plan, it's interleaved practice, which was huge for us, distributed interleaved practice, right? So the to-be-learned material gets brought up again throughout the unit over time. That way you reinforce the material through this, again, four to six-week period. We know from a lot of, again, the literature base on in the learning sciences and cognitive science as it applies to education that we see, you know, pre-testing is a quite an effective technique, even if there isn't going to be, say, a test and assessment to take. There should be an assessment. Quizzes are also usually pretty handy for measuring student learning. So interleaved practice was big. Distributed practice, the checks for prior knowledge at the beginning of each lesson, right? So we, a teacher can measure whether or not the student is where they need to be to be able to interact with the content at this level. And that usually comes through warm-ups, which then must be included in a lesson. So it's, it's really just this iterative process of given a set of best practices, how do you build something that reflects it? Because you can't always say do X, Y, and Z to the language model and expect it to be aligned to that thing. It's this, this kind of leading through examples or leading through this, this, this parameter-like definition and then a lot of testing and then making tweaks when the tests come up in a way that we don't believe reflects what we want, right? Sorry, that yeah. was a huge answer. That was no. that was a mega prompt, I suppose. Yeah, no kidding. So, that, so that's given me a lot to think about. And what it really requires is, you know, I guess the thing that I'm thinking is the reason why someone should be using a a tool like yours is that you've done a lot of that work on setting up the prompt in the background mm -hmm. so that the teacher can spend even less time thinking about that idea. So let's say, for example, that you have this unit plan and the teacher's needs are different from how you've built and designed yes. this thing, which is naturally going to happen in a lot of situations, right? Mm -hmm. And so that still requires some level of uh, flexibility, creativity on the part of the teacher, but at the same time, that still is, is shortening the time mm -hmm. spent in preparation, hopefully. And uh, I've done a few things using different tools just to compare how they, how they work and, and seeing that sometimes like, honestly, I could have just written this faster myself. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't always save as much time. And, and there are. There are certain situations that are specific where that has happened. Specifically, one for me is podcast show notes. I can typically write those faster because I did the interview. I talked to the person. I have a better idea of how it really is going and what I want people to get out of it. And those pieces of intention are something that's another limitation of the AI, that it, it doesn't understand what our real intention is, even if our intention is meet or pass the standard, it still doesn't totally understand 
how to apply that in a real life situation. What, what are your thoughts on that? I believe the technology lowers the cost of evolution, meaning it's much yeah. cheaper for a teacher now to explore a new method or technique than it ever was before. Maybe you can write a lesson plan much quicker than the AI could, or maybe you don't really write lesson plans. A lot of teachers don't. So you won't just don't, don't use that. Make the consumer choice and say, I don't need this. I'm not going to use it. And great, you're playing to your strengths. But when it's time to do the administrative rote tasks where you don't really need that personal touch and we know that we can reliably get good results, then maybe you want to use the technology. Or when you want to explore new options and you're uncomfortable, right, with, say, maybe cooperative, a specific cooperative learning strategy that you always found interesting but never really implemented in your classroom, maybe like a, the jigsaw activity, right, where you have your expert groups and we can go into that. But Maybe you use an AI now to see what a jigsaw would look like for this content that you know really well, and you have your lesson plan you are already going to do, but now you can explore this additional option without that significant upfront cost of spending half of your planning exploring it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good example and a, a great way to say that, that it lowers the cost of evolution because you can try new things with a lower barrier to entry. Exactly. You know? You don't have to go to a two-day Kagan cooperative learning workshop mm -hmm. to start bringing some cooperative learning into your classroom that when you don't, when you just don't know anything about it. And so mm -hmm. you can go to a resource that somebody else has created and, you know, there's lots of things on teachers pay teachers or blog posts or whatever that's out there that is for their specific things. Yeah. Uh, but if you need something for you, you can customize it enough that you can, that you can get something. What do you, speaking of teachers pay teachers, what do you think something like this is going to do to, to a site like teachers pay teachers? Well, my, my research area in grad school was on open educational resources, uh -huh. which are freely and openly available teaching materials and learning objects. So I, I felt as though perhaps it was kind of antithetical to the mission of education to place valuable educational material behind paywalls, even, um, I guess, particularly steep paywalls. Maybe that comes mostly in the form of research journals for me. There's huge, huge disparities in which universities and colleges have access to those and which ones do not and where they're located geographically around the world. Same, I would argue, is true for educational resources. So when I get an email, as I did, from a teacher who did a professional development in Pakistan, where they are engaging teachers in the creation of educational resources in their language, because we offer a range of language accessibility options, and then they have this, this personalized material, and perhaps they have to spend some time making changes, but they have the starting place that did not exist before. Again, as, as someone who does podcasts, I, may, I bet you're aware of Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, right? He's got this great quote. Yes, he's a wonderful podcaster, just the talent of the guy to do these five-hour opuses. But he said that things open up in ways you can't imagine simply because you did something. And that quote has really stuck with me for, for years now. And I, I, think that's, I think that's true, right? Things are opening up in ways you can't imagine for teachers and for educators simply because this technology is now available and openly and freely available. That totally didn't answer your question. To answer your question, Eduate, for example, is going to launch a community 
in which teachers will be able to openly and freely share the resources that they generate on the platform with other users who could then say, import that to their workspace and say, oh, this was for this entire lesson they have was for a classroom with three English language learners, um, two students with this particular IEP. And it's like, oh, that's, that's my context. I have a very similar situation. And now you can take that and since it's open, you can remix it and revise it in the app to fit even closer what you were doing in the classroom. So it's, it's installing this level of checks and balances with the technology. You're pairing the artificial intelligence with the collective intelligence of the users with the intuitive choices that the individual might make. And we're hoping that this can create this ecosystem in which the technology becomes more reliable in the, in, in the long term, right? Because the foundational models themselves, ChatGPT, Llama, et cetera, et cetera, they, they're not particularly useful in their current form for doing the reliable work that we need them or would want them to do in education. It requires some fine-tuning, embedding, some prompt design best practices and understanding the content area you're looking at. So there's a lot of work to go, but I, I think it's a good place to start. Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective. And that's another thing that when we, when we talk about the design of these tools, that you are intentionally bringing this open approach to it in, yes. and that influences your, your design decisions about allowing people to share what they're doing, make it public, and then let other people remix from that. And, and that I think is an area where these AI tools are great for getting a first draft. Yes. But then they're also really great for finding something that is already existing mm -hmm. and adding a little wrinkle to it or, or adjusting it to a certain amount so that it's more uh, dialed in for your particular context. And that when you give it that information and say, hey, I've got, this is great, but I've got a student in my 10th grade class who's mm -hmm. reading at a second grade level. I need you to make this accessible for them. Yeah. That's a, that's a possibility that is, is exceptionally difficult with you know, the textbook that you've got sitting, on, sitting yeah. on your teacher's desk, you know. Because it's that, it's that static single object that doesn't have this level of, of flexibility. That was another large part of what we were hoping to accomplish was installing this level of granular control that a teacher could take over anything they put in the workspace. Instead of conceiving a generative technology as like a, you click this thing to generate this thing, it might be you highlight a portion of text, right click it. And now there's these cool things you could do to manipulate the text. Like you might manipulate a photo on Photoshop and that has some mm -hmm. dangerous implications, right? That's not always a positive thing. And we can also yeah. get into that. But say now as a teacher, I have a text that I love to use, right? It's reliable. I've taught with it for years. There's a lot of high impact stuff in there, but maybe there's some things you want to add, right? Maybe you want to extract the most high use keywords that students of a particular reading level might have a problem with and provide definitions for that in a glossary. Well, you could do that now, or maybe you want to scale the reading level up or down. You can do that now, or you want to insert a couple of those, as you were talking about, hate writing multiple choice questions because you have to figure out what a good wrong answer would look like, right? Now you could insert those into the reading so you make it more of a more of an active exercise. Like there's things you can do in playing with the text that you already have that wasn't before positive possible. It turns this whole text process into kind of this collage like work where you're able to 
combine and, and stack it. And it's this, this modular system, which is really at the root of what language is. I mean, authors like William S. Burroughs were playing with this concept back in the 50s when he would take a whole book and cut up each individual word and then slide them together in new combinations to make these new works. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things you can do when you look at language as a tool and less as this immutable thing that, you know, we were endowed with and must protect at all costs. It's like, well, we created language and playing with it in a in a system that is outside of our brain is quite is quite interesting and refreshing, I think. Yeah. And and it is how some would argue the best thinking happens is by actually playing with the language outside of your own brain. As a serial note taker, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. I mean, we, ha we have the kids do it already, right? When you ask them to come into conversation with the text, when you write in the margins of your book and you enter into that conversation with the author, you are you're, you're playing with the text, right? The ways in which we quote text with ellipses and we're combining and shortening arguments. There, we, already, we already play with it, but now we're kind of being able to play with this huge playground of text that is quite frightening because it, it, is, yeah. qu it is quite massive. I mean, it's it's nerve-wracking where the data came from, how the data was processed, what that says about us. It's it's a reflection of our own language, which is which is quite interesting. Yeah. Speaking of taking notes, by the way, have you read the book How to Take Smart Notes by Sanke Ahrens? No, but I guess I will now. <laughs> yeah. Put it on your list. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a game changer. What is really cool about that process, here's the the gist of it. You take smart notes by Anything you want to highlight, mm -hmm. you write something that is related to that, where that is either the source or the counter argument or whatever. But the purpose is that when you take a note, you mm -hmm. write what you think about it rather than just highlighting it. So yes. in my doctoral coursework right now, I'm, I'm reading all these essays and research papers and all this kind of stuff. And, and my rule for myself is, if I highlight it, that I have to comment on it and I can't just highlight it. So now I'm gathering all of these things, these snippets of text with my thoughts with it. And, and then at some point I'll be able to go through those. And as I'm writing these other papers, be mm -hmm. able to bring those things in and be able to go yeah. through the process much faster than going back and saying, what do I think about this highlighted text now? I already wrote down what I think about mm -hmm. it. So now it's a matter of fitting that into the larger structure of whatever I'm working on. And, and, and that kind of strategy with an AI tool to mm -hmm. say, here are my, here are the quotes and the sources, and here are my thoughts about each one and make this into a coherent flowing idea mm -hmm. can be a quite powerful process that could save a lot of time, but again, you've got to put the work in up front in writing down your thoughts from the beginning rather than just highlighting things. I mean, artificial intelligence will be fantastic for managing large databases and the like. So is, if a human takes copious good notes, you could do a lot of interesting things in making that, that knowledge base more active where you can kind of query it with something that can speak to you back in the in the framing of your notes which would be which would be quite that'd be quite fun to have now that i'm thinking about it i mean i have an app that i use obsidian for my notes um, it's just Me all too. marked oh okay there it is yeah. it's just i love being able to connect the knowledge base to those backlinks and using the system of tagging i just i find that to be a, a useful system and it 
is different than how I would previously take notes, which is that kind of file format where you put things in different folders and the folders inside of folders and you number all of it and yep. it usually gets lost. But in making your knowledge base something that is easily searchable and you can see the connections between thoughts seems to be more useful for me. And that's just a credit. I promise you, I'm not getting money from Obsidian on this, but you know, I couldn't recommend yeah. it more. Ma'am, no kidding. So I've actually taken Markdown Notes since 2011. And so my Obsidian library, and I've moved from several different things. Yeah. I did Evernote for a while, but mm -hmm. my big problem with it was that uh, when I had to export everything, it was a major pain yeah. to get everything out of there. So, so anyway, I've been taking notes like that for a long time. Mm -hmm. All of my podcast notes from every interview I've ever done are all in there in this format. And, yeah. and what's really cool is that there are some chat GPT plugins for obsidian. I saw those, that yeah. will, will allow you to start making connections that are, mm -hmm. that are pretty cool. And this is, this is one of those ideas just to continue on this a little bit longer from how to take smart notes is that you have all these connected notes and you mm -hmm. find ways to bridge them and connect them. And what I've, what I do when I read something is I almost always read it on the Kindle. And if I don't have it on the Kindle and I do have it in PDF, then I read it in the Readwise app. Okay. And then Readwise syncs to Obsidian automatically. And when I take notes, I will link to other notes because I know what they're called in the comments. Yeah. So that that link is already established, which is that's so awesome. nerdy. Yeah. So nerdy. No, that's awesome. <laughs> but I knew you'd appreciate it. But yeah, but that that's what makes some of this stuff really powerful is that one, you if you can start finding those connections automatically without mm -hmm. you having without you remembering that that was there, that's really powerful. And there have been a couple of times where I've been able to find some of these other notes. Mm -hmm. In fact, it just happened last night. Oh, my gosh. I was yeah, I was I was working on something for my doctoral program. And I was like, man, I swear I've done something around yeah. this before. And sure enough, I go find this note from like 2016, 2017, yeah. something like that. And it was like exactly what I needed in that moment mm -hmm. and totally filled in a gap that I had. And because I had this system where I could search through everything and find what I was looking for, I was able to connect it back fairly easily. Which is quite remarkable i mean first that's every note taker's dream right you you come back yeah. and you're like there's this note from this thing you took five yeah. years ago six years ago i just have a drawer of paper notes so because i've been so sloppy in noting um until now i only started using obsidian maybe late last year huh. but that said the use of ai in connecting those those disparate notes in a way that you hope you would connect to be learned material with your with your past prior knowledge it, it's not quite the same thing, right? In understanding and exploring how artificial intelligence learns, how these large language model learn, language models learn, and differentiating that from how humans learn, you begin to reveal a little bit about the educational process. And I mean, it's common knowledge for all teachers. You know, you learn into relation to what you already know, and ways for using artificial intelligence to maybe in conversation with students, gauge prior knowledge around a specific topic so you can better address student shortcomings. I mean, prior knowledge has a huge, huge effect size on any kind of new learning. I mean, 
a lot of students approach a new topic without the requisite knowledge to do well in that topic. And then we're wondering why there's such variations in grades and we try to do interventions at that topic level. But it's like, no, no, you're missing the more fundamental foundational piece. It becomes very apparent when you have a student who has a, say, much, much lower reading level than where they than where most of their classmates are at a certain level, right? At, say 11th grade and and you have a student who is measured reading at say a seventh or sixth grade reading level, that could create huge barriers in them being able to come in contact with the material. And that that's a very obvious example. But what about the more fine-tuned stuff? If you try to go into the American Revolution without the students having the proper nested context of understanding the British salutary neglect and the French and Indian Wars and the like. So then you have this this requirement for prior knowledge, being able to use artificial intelligence in a way that may make a student's lack of or their ability with various pieces of prior knowledge going into a lesson would have tremendous value. That's not something that EduAid does, by the way. I'm just speculating about where the technology could go, and that'd be quite interesting. We try to get there by making very explicit and very clear at the beginning of most of all of our uh, generations that you need a certain piece of requisite knowledge and what that knowledge would look like so a teacher can go in with some knowledge there. But yeah, prior knowledge needs to be huge and the uses and implications of AI would be quite interesting in that domain. I mean, I can see a whole, you know, we talked about tutors for specific mm -hmm. skills, but even having tutors to give the requisite background knowledge would be incredibly yeah. powerful. And I, I believe from what I've seen with kids who do have the background knowledge, that would be huge in helping kids be more successful in mm -hmm. learning the things that they need to be learning. So this conversation has been awesome. I so appreciate your time and I feel like we could go on for another time flew. I thought it was 15 minutes hours. in. <laughs> I know. Right. So we did not even get to Ludwig Stein and Wittgenstein. Yes. And uh, we may need to come back for that. I would like to come back for that after I've learned a little bit more okay. about Ludwig and and get some uh, my book own club segment knowledge. Yeah, that's right. That'd be yes. a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so this was good. How, how would you like people to reach out and connect with you if they, uh, if they want to, if they want to try EduAid, what's, mm -hmm. what's the best way to do that? So EduAid.ai, again, we're totally free. We're totally open. You make an account. All it takes is you type in your email address. We send you a link. You're there. No password necessary. Um, just get right in and we save a, we don't really save any data at all, right? Nothing gets quartered or anything like that. We should make that clear. I know the education space is, is, is very much FERPA and COPPA compliant. Yeah, we are that. We never ask you to input any kind of personally identifiable student data or anything like that. So it, it's fine to just play around with and see what we have. But if you want to talk about EduAid, contact at eduaid.ai, or you could email me, thomas.thompson at eduaid.ai. Those are really the best ways. Instagram and TikTok, of course, and all the social medias where we're there. I personally don't really look at the social medias. That's that's Thomas Hummel, the other co-founder. I'm very happy that he's savvy in that department because I, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, again, this has <laughs> been great chatting with you, and and thanks for your time, Thomas. Thank you for thank uh, you for the the thoughtful way you're approaching this. I think that's really valuable. Thank you. This has been great.